Welcome to Plant Stories. The modern, the old, and the crazy in between. Myth or fact? The shoe button artesia has delicious, wonderful berries that you can eat. That one's a myth. Well, you can eat them, but they're not very good. <laughs> and that brings us into today's episode, the shoe button ardesia. Take it away. So the shoe button ardesia is a shrub or a small tree, and it originates from Asia. So it was primarily believed to inhabit India, Sri Lanka, China, Taiwan, Malaysia, Indonesia, and the Philippines, and some other areas of Southeast Asia. It's also known as duck's eye or coral berry, and its, uh, you know, official scientific name is Ardesia elliptica. Oof, you nailed it. Thank you. This is probably <laughs> the first one I've really got, so I'm pretty proud of myself. <laughs> um, the shoe button grows beginning with a single upright stem, and that upright stem produces branches and it can grow additional stems from its rootstock, which is considered to be very strong. And actually, damage to the plant can, in fact, trigger more growing from the rootstock so that you have multiple rootstocks, which is um, kind of sucky for an invasive plant. Mm-hmm. Gotta be sure. Yeah. Uh, this plant primarily grows in wetland soils. So, any kind of wet soil, actually, really, including stream bottoms with clay soils. Um, wetlands can be disturbed and have a higher rate of these, but the area doesn't actually have to be disturbed in order for these plants to take root. Uh, they're popularly known to take over mangroves, old fields, and tree islands in marshes. And I thought we would pick this plant today primarily because it's an issue locally in Florida. So compared to some of the other plants we've talked about, this one has actually got a relatively small area where it's very invasive. But I picked this too because it's a more recent one. It's more recently come to the attention of uh, Florida authorities that this plant has invasive habits. So I thought I'd pick something that is a little different in that it's a lot more recently been known to be invasive. So one of the reasons that this plant is an issue is there's a couple other native Florida plants that look strikingly similar to it. And those plants are the marlberry and the myrcene. And so both of these plants are similar. And part of the reason that they're similar is because these plants are actually related to the shoe button ardesia. Um, but the main differences are that the mul- or the marlberry has white berries instead of deep purple ones like the shoe button. And neither plant has purple flowers, which the shoe button plant actually does. And so they have these black purple berries they're very small they're around six millimeters each and they're said to look like slightly smushed tiny grapes 
uh, and when you pierce that flesh on the outside, the inside is actually white. These fruits are considered edible, but they're considered very bland taste-wise. So you can eat them, uh, but I don't know if you want to. Maybe if you were, like, dying, I don't know, starving for sustenance, this would Con- be an okay choice. Confident that it's not nightshade because it doesn't taste good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so these plants reach maturity in about two to four years and can grow in total about 12 to 15 feet or five meters tall. Seedlings can grow up to three feet or one meter in their first year with a lifespan of about 10 to 25 years. Uh, This plant also has light purple flowers that grow in clusters along its stem. They're actually super cute. I don't know if you <laughs> want to look them up, but they're adorable. I'm doing it. And initially, this flower was introduced to the United States as an ornamental plant in the 1800s. Partially because of its cute flowers. They look like starfish. Yeah, they're super cute. <laughs> and, uh, partially just because they were considered an attractive plant. Part of the reason that, or the main reason, that they're called shoe button is because the berries resemble the fat buttons on button-up shoes that were popular in the late 1800s. So that's how it got its name. Like, cute little buttons. And in the 1930s, the species was first reported to escape cultivated sites. Uh, But it didn't really cause much concern until much more recently. Um, In 1999, it was found in Big Cypress National Reserve in Florida. And since then, it's been spotted, obviously, in quite a few spots and known to have these very invasive tendencies. So more recently, it's become classified as a noxious weed by the U.S. government. And this is mainly because it takes over a lot of wet habitats in Florida, which if you know anything about Florida, it's a very wet place. Mm-hmm. It's very humid. And that is the prime place for this plant to grow. It's still actually considered a weed, maybe not a noxious weed, but a weed in some other places too. Like I did find it on uh, Australia's weed list. So it's definitely got a bigger effect on Florida than some other places, but it has spread to other places as well. And it's taken over the homes of the mangroves? It can. It certainly can. Yeah. (laughs) They're so cool looking. Yeah. No, they really are. There's quite a few reasons why... And how this plant uh, perpetrates its invasive habits. Um, This plant currently has no natural predators. So in Florida, it's pretty much free to grow wherever it wants. As long as humans don't disturb it. Um, And so it pretty easily creates large monocultures, which... We've definitely already talked a few times about the really damaging effects of 
monocultures and what they can do to an environment. And this plant is also easily capable of doing that. And even though we know that it's capable of doing that, because of its similarity to those other familiar plants that we talked about, it does often end up getting misidentified as a, another less harmful plant uh, that is even native, you know. So oftentimes, I mean, anybody who's tried to identify plants, I think they know how difficult it can be to accurately identify a plant, especially if you're doing it as more of a hobby or in this case, you know, you're passing by a random plant that you see. If it looks, you don't have the berries or the flowers to help. Exactly. And so it just ends up getting swept under the radar a lot more often than you would think. Um, And this plant also can be very difficult to find until it's already taken over a large area. So a lot of invasive plants are tracked by aerial view photography. And so they're able to do these aerial views and kind of see areas where an invasive plant has taken over and then mark those areas uh, to be, you know, inspected and have these invasive plants removed, especially when it's a monoculture, because you can see that a whole area looks the same. But this plant grows in shade. Oh, so it's hidden. Yeah, so it hides, it grows in shade, it grows on low floors, underneath uh, trees and tall life. Like we talked about how they have those kind of marsh tree islands. They'll grow kind of below the trees and you won't be able to see them. And so the plant is primarily removed where people are around and can spot the plant. But it makes it very difficult to really eliminate it fully because it's always growing somewhere else. And the seeds continue to be spread. And then the cycle just continues. They're just kind of constantly killing this invasive plant in these particular areas that people go and they know that they are. But in these other wetland areas where they can't see or find them, they don't usually know it's there until it's kind of too late or until it's very difficult to eliminate. So, like I said, the plant is very shade tolerant and it can it can live in low light conditions for several years and then it will just kind of rapidly mature, mature to adulthood. Kind of similar to what we talked about in the Norway maple where, you know, it can kind of like not quite hibernate, but it can kind of lay low for a long time and then mature very rapidly once it sees its prime chance to get up there. And so is it being eaten? Yeah, so... Like I said, it, the plant doesn't really have any predators, but the berries are very attractive to birds. So although there are a few reports that say that raccoons may also be spreading the seeds as well, the plant's primary way to spread is being eaten by birds. And so the birds eat the berries and then, you know, they poop wherever they want, like we all know they do. And... <laughs> they end up with more seeds. And if you don't notice the seedlings in time, they'll grow. And, you know, one plant 
like a six foot plant can produce hundreds of berries with obviously hundreds of seeds. And it allows for kind of quick spread over these habitats, even in the same areas, you know, birds do fly around obviously, but they also, you know, go back to places that they know for food, if they know that food is going to be there. So they also spread, you know, locally in that area, not just everywhere else. And so they very easily facilitate this widespread of this plant. And the plant can tolerate some wetter soils than other plants. So it really invades like marshland areas and stuff pretty easily. And the reason they think that it's primarily stayed in Florida is only because it has like a low threshold for cold. So it can't really deal with the cold. And that's kind of... Yes, yeah. And that's kind of why it's isolated to Florida. It can't it can't deal with harsh winters or anything like that. But the other part of that is that because it you know, can't deal with the cold and it stays in these warmer climates, it's also kind of in season, quote, year round. So even though the berries primarily you know, occur in the summer, since it's surviving in this Florida climate, it can also flower really at any time. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, you know, and it makes the plant very quick to outgrow native species. And it just kind of keeps doing what it's doing. And even when you think it technically should be not blooming, there's probably one, you know, blooming or with berries somewhere. And so it's just getting its way around, you know thriving unfortunately exactly (laughs) without providing for i guess it's feeding some birds but they don't even taste good (laughs) true yeah they uh you know well birds are not as picky i know i have birds (laughs) they don't care just stuff give me stuff yeah they'll eat paper they don't care yeah (laughs) um so about 3,600 acres of land have been targeted for shoe button removal by Florida authorities. And um, that is from a more recent article that I read in 2020. Uh, Removal has been found to be both very labor intensive and quite expensive. So plants are usually hacked at with a machete. Uh, Or sometimes if you have a big enough area where the plant has in fact already created a monoculture they will go over it with a shredder. Hmm. And if the area, you know, if they don't think that that's going to do it, then they also spray it with herbicide. And from what I can tell, it seems like they kind of have to spray it with herbicide. Nobody necessarily, I think, wants to use herbicide if they're a conservationist. But in this case, you know, causing damage to those roots will just cause the plant to get bigger and stronger so if you don't take out the roots then the plant just comes back yeah definitely makes me think of like the issue with kudzu of it being able to like thrive when everything around it's been cut down yeah 
It definitely makes me think of that as well. Or even coke and grass, where like it just kills everything around it, and then it's like lays <laughs> yeah. in wait. That one was pretty um, cool. Yeah, and so often the same people who go to destroy this plant one year even if they do manage to get a fair amount of it that first time end up coming back and doing this whole process over again to get rid of any more seedlings that have sprouted up either brought back by the birds or still there because of a missed root Mm -hmm. it almost seems like a futile effort like there's only so much you can control I can agree with that but I also think that they're trying to protect wildlife in particular areas especially like areas like national parks and things and so the nice thing about those areas is that they are often frequented by visitors and they're often frequented by visitors who do care about plants and wildlife so they are the most likely places where someone could positively identify the plant and facilitate its removal. And so since it is kind of thriving in these protected areas, removing it is worth it to save, you know, all the other plants there. I think the main issue is just that they haven't found a good way to track where it is to really like fully remove it and make it not an issue. And you also imagine that if it's taking away other food sources for these birds and these birds are eating these berries, it might be difficult on the environment as well to completely remove the plant at this point. Yeah. The whole food source. Yeah. But there are a couple a few positive uses of the plant. Um, It has been used medicinally by people in its native area. So Malaysian people have been known to use the plant's leaves and sometimes the roots specifically for the treatment of chest pains, which is like restrosternal pains, meaning like below the sternum. And also diarrhea, because pretty much, I guess, everything cures diarrhea. I don't know. <laughs> or causes it. Right? Like, we it? just don't like... know anymore. <laughs> Someone's like, hmm, you have diarrhea? Eat this. Yep. Just try it. It'll do something. See what, happen- <laughs> yeah, see-, <laughs> see what happens. I'm sure it'll, like, cure it or not. I don't know. <laughs> it'll cure it or kill you. You're not sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um. But primarily for the chest pains. Uh, There are some reports that people in the Philippines have used it to treat wounds. And in Sri Lanka, it's actually considered an antiviral. Hmm. And sometimes you use to treat herpes. Which is interesting, I guess. I don't know. Feels Feels like a throwaway, you know what I mean? There's no scientific evidence to suggest necessarily that this is like a full-on antiviral that could help with something like herpes. So part of me kind of feels like someone was like, oh, you have herpes? I know just the thing. (laughs) 
just like pulled a berry out from their yard and they're like put this on it put this on it (laughs) and we'll see if it goes away and they're like it disappeared in seven days and they're like perfect (laughs) yeah it was definitely the berry correlation not causation kind of myths yeah exactly but you never know um the plant does go largely unstudied for medicinal uses so there are some studies but not enough to confirm anything and they do think that it's possible it could be antibacterial or antimicrobial in nature but we do know that other varieties of plants in this family um, are used medicinally for similar purposes but also sometimes including things like relief after childbirth or even like treatments for cancer some of them have been looked into as so we do know that some of the other plants in this family do have some of these traits and it's possible that this plant does as well but none of them have certainly seemed like a miracle cure and we have plenty of other effective antibacterials and antimicrobials so this plant is not number one for all that and what's your mini tip my mini tip is you should not try to identify this plant on your own um I mean, more than likely, most of us won't see this plant all the time unless you live in one of these kind of specific areas that doesn't tolerate cold, which we know is not where we live in Massachusetts. Um, I think in general, though, you know, a lesson that we've learned throughout this process is that you need to pay attention to the ornamental plants that you are buying and what you do with them. Um, So many of the reasons that we have these invasive plants in the United States uh, is because somebody thought it was pretty and decided to bring it back home with them. And there are a lot of cases, even that I've encountered when I was working at the florist where people from other countries want to bring plants from here back home. I know that when I've been in other places and I've seen pretty plants, I've been tempted to try and bring something back home. And of course there are custom laws and things like that, uh, even from state to state in the U S but also internationally, that prevent us from bringing certain things back with us because they affect the populations of native plants. And so just like being aware and understanding that, you know, the plants that you bring home can have an effect on other things in your environment, even if it's not immediate, you know, even years down the line and you could bring something that you think is potentially harmless that could actually do quite a great deal of damage. Support native plants. Exactly. (laughs) And what are we talking about in our next episode? 
In our next episode, we're going to talk about Wisteria. Which, Wisteria. until I looked it up, exactly. Until I looked it up, I didn't even know that it was an invasive plant. But it turns out that in the U.S., it is, in fact, an invasive plant. So that is what we will learn about next time. It's so pretty. <laughs> I know. Well, thank you all for joining us on our latest episode of Plant Stories. This is Invasive Plants, Shoe Button Ardesia. If you like this episode, why don't you share it with somebody? Leave a comment, send us a message. We're super available. <laughs> and we'll join <laughs> us next week as we learn all about wisteria and how it's actually quite invasive. Bye!